this is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva, and I welcome you to another PCOS Diva podcast. And today I am really excited to have Nicole Jardam with us today. She is a young woman's hormonal health coach and the creator of Fix Your Period. It's a series of programs that empower women to reclaim their hormonal health in a fun and sassy way. I love that. She runs a successful one-on-one and group coaching business, and she's helped thousands of women from all around the world who are struggling with PCOS, infertility, amenorrhea, PMS, and much more. And I, I love that rather than treating problems or symptoms, Nicole treats women by addressing the root cause of what's really going on in their bodies and minds. She passionately believes that the fundamentals to healing any hormonal balance lies in an approach that addresses the unique physiology of every woman. And this is essential to reclaiming and maintaining feminine vitality at any age. I love your mis- mission and message, Nicole. Welcome. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm so honored to be here chatting with you today. Thank you. Well, I wanted to um, kind of talk a little bit, since you are, um, your expertise is periods and, and kind of you have this wonderful program about fixing your periods. I thought we could talk a little bit about periods today. And mm-hmm. I hear from women often uh, on my Facebook page and just reaching out via email asking about their period issues. And as we all know, women with PCOS, and this is one of the the diagnostic criteria, is women with PCOS struggle with absent or irregular menstrual cycles. You know, they they, um, may be ovulating, um, you know, um, not as often as they should, or they may not be ovulating at all. Um, And then on top of that, and and I know as... um, a woman in my 20s who was really struggling with PCOS, I had some mm-hmm. crazy periods. I would bleed for months on end. I would have um, breakthrough cycle bleeding where I'd have like brown spotting in my cycles and just really kind of a regular type of um, period. And I'm hearing the same thing from a lot of PCOS divas out there as well. Um, so I would love for you to kind of give us a... Um, an idea of what a normal period or what, you know, what we would be really striving for. And then maybe we can, yeah. maybe we can kind of talk about what's going on um, with these irregular cycles. Yeah, I just want to preface it by saying that, you know, I, I didn't have, I never got a formal diagnosis of PCOS or anything like that, but I really struggled too, so I can definitely relate to a lot of what women are, are talking about to you. And um, and I think that, you know, we don't really know what an ideal cycle actually looks like. So I'm happy to do a, a walkthrough of, of what that is. And, um, you know, I think it's really good for women to understand what it is that they're working towards. So basically what you'd be looking for with an ideal cycle is uh, anywhere for it to be anywhere from 25 to 35 days and not having a lot of variation within that. So if your cycle is typically like 28 to 30 days, that's okay. But if it's, you know, 25 days one month and then 35 another month and then back and forth like that, that's something to pay attention to. But ideally, it can fall within that 10-day window and and be considered a normal menstrual cycle. Uh, If your cycle is 
24 days or less, then uh, what you might have is something called luteal phase defect. I really don't like that term, but that's what they call it. And essentially all it means is that your luteal phase, which is that second half of your cycle after ovulation happens, is considered too short. And it would be too short to either get pregnant or potentially stay pregnant. <clears throat> Um, if your cycle is longer, which is the case for so many women who have PCOS, so if it's 36 days or longer consistently, then uh, we call that, we, call, we basically call those, you know, irregular cycles or oligomenorrhea, which is basically cycles that are longer than 36 days uh, consistently. And, uh, and if that's the case, then um, that is, as you were saying, one of the diagnostic criteria for PCOS. Uh, if you're going back to that luteal phase again, ideally you're looking for a luteal phase or that second half of your cycle to be anywhere from about 10 to 14 days long. And that will tell you whether you've had a, a fertile cycle or not. Uh, in addition to that, um, if the, if your luteal phase is longer than those 14 days, typically consistently, then it could indicate PCOS as well, because again, that just means that you're having a, a longer cycle than what is considered, uh, normal or, um, basically, yeah, consistent. Uh, anyway, so what I was going to say about the, the length of the cycle, if you are consistently having these cycles that are longer than 36 days, it means that ovulation is either not occurring or it is just happening at a very late stage in your cycle. And that's why I think charting your menstrual cycle is, is really important so that you can understand what's going on in there. I feel like that's, you know, one of the first steps for women who are trying to get answers if they have PCOS or potentially some other condition as, along with PCOS is to really start to get a clear understanding of what's going on so that you can then, you know, make really informed decisions about, about what's happening with your body. Um, also, I wanted to mention too, if you have what is, you know, called a long follicular phase, so the follicular phase is really that first half of your cycle, right before ovulation happens, it could indicate that you have high levels of estrogen, and this could push out ovulation, so this could prevent ovulation from happening when it's supposed to. And so that's another sign of uh, PCOS, again, because it's causing delayed ovulation or preventing it completely from happening just because of the hormonal imbalance. Ultimately, our goal is to have a, like a good balance or ratio between estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen and progesterone are the two male, sorry, main <laughs> female sex hormones, and they're the ones that play the pivotal roles in menstruation every single month. So the idea is to have a balanced ratio between those two. And so if they're off, then we start to see these kinds of symptoms, either uh, periods that are long when we have, you know, an ongoing period because that's another sign of PCOS as well. And, and that's typically a sign of estrogen dominance where estrogen is too high in relation to progesterone. And what happens is uh, we then see um, on, these ongoing periods, so periods that last longer than what we should be having. So typically a period should be anywhere from about three to seven days. But some women, as you were saying earlier, have periods that go on for weeks at a time. And that's usually a sign of an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone, where estrogen is too high in relation to progesterone. Sorry, I feel like I could go on and on. <laughs> 
Well, let me just um, let me just uh, step back. You were talking about charting, and yes. uh, and then I want to talk about estrogen dominance too um, in, mm-hmm. in more detail. But the the charting, I can tell you that charting my cycles was how I was diagnosed with PCOS um, mm-hmm. after struggling for years. I mean, I, I started probably around. I remember being a freshman in in high school and singing in class and feeling a hair pop out on my chin, um, and then really and having the the period issues. And so I think I was having some early signs of PCOS at 14, but I was not diagnosed until I was. Um, aged like 30, uh, when oh I was goodness. doing fertility charting w- through the Crichton model of natural family planning, and it was actually a nurse practitioner that was teaching the method that actually suggested that I might have PCOS based on my charting. And so that oh was yeah. a really, um, gosh, an integral part of my PCOS journey to really be able to understand what was going on with my body through fertility charting, but maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what methods you like. Are there any apps out there? Um, What do you recommend to your clients if they want to start charting their cycles? Oh, my goodness. I love this question. It's so great. I am completely obsessed with charting my cycle and and getting everyone in my life and all my clients to do that, too, for precisely the reason that you just described, that it's so incredibly empowering to have such a clear picture of what is happening in your body every single month. And uh, and again, too, it can diagnose so many things. So for me, I use the fertility awareness method, and uh, I'm very familiar with the uh, Creighton model as well and a, a couple others, too. But the fertility awareness method is what I've used for probably almost 10 years now. And essentially what you're looking for is are three different things. So you're looking at your basal body temperature every single day. And what that is is just your temperature upon awakening. And you use a basal body thermometer, uh, which measures to uh, the hundredth of a degree, uh, your temperature in the morning. And so when you, when you start to see a pattern, what you will see is after you ovulate, your temperature actually goes up. So this is incredibly useful information for someone who has an irregular cycle, especially if they are potentially trying to get pregnant or are trying to regulate their cycles. I've had so many women say to me that, you know, they've started charting and and just started making changes to their diet and their lifestyle and all of these things along with charting. And what they see is their uh, their temperature spike or their temperature shift goes, gets, you know, closer and closer to the middle of, you know, the cycle, the middle of where a typical cycle would be, anywhere from days 12 to 17, typically for ovulation. And it's very exciting for them because you can see measurable results. And I think that that is very helpful for us when we're on a health journey, right? We want to be able to see some kind of improvement right before our eyes. Otherwise, it can become a little disheartening when you don't see those those immediate results. And so you're looking for your temperature, then you're looking at your cervical fluid, and that changes. And unfortunately, if you have PCOS, it can be a little confusing because typically you would have higher estrogen levels, which we can get to in a second, but essentially what that will do is increase the cervical fluid that you see. However, there are ways to see a cervical fluid pattern. It just takes a little bit of time uh, and patience with your own cycle. And uh, and as I was saying, when you ovulate, 
your cervical fluid changes quite a great deal. So you're, it's going to become uh, much more wetter, uh, stretchier, almost like egg white, very watery. Those are kind of what you're looking for. And then it would potentially dry up for the rest of your cycle or it would just, it would get sticky and, and maybe a little bit creamy. Uh, so there are a lot of symptoms to look for. And then the third thing is uh, cervical position. And that essentially means that you're looking to, you're, or you're feeling more appropriately, to see where your cervix is. And it actually rises. It goes up higher during ovulation or during that ovulatory phase, whereas during the rest of your cycle, it actually sits lower. So you can actually feel for your, sorry, your cervical position. So those are the three signs and symptoms that you're looking for every single, well, not every single day, but pretty much every day of the month. And then uh, you are able to formulate a chart and the signs and symptoms on this chart. And what I use is a, an app on my phone. It's called Kindara. There are quite a few others. I actually use like four different apps because I'm kind of crazy. But I really like Kindara because of their chart, uh, their actual temperature chart. I think it's really clear and, and very, very easy to read. I also use Glow. I use Clue as well. I like iPeriod. There's another one called My Moon Time, which is great because it, it basically brings in the phases of the moon, which I really like a lot. And so there are a number. I mean, there's so many apps now. It's unbelievable. But those are the ones that I have found to be really useful and effective. So I'm going to ask you to um, just send me those apps, and I'll post them underneath this interview, as well as any other information you have about the fertility awareness method on your site. Um, yeah. And I can point, point listeners to those resources. That would be great. That would be amazing. Absolutely. I'd love that. So let's talk about um, estrogen dominance. I think women with PCOS, we were, were constantly hearing about elevated androgens and elevated testosterone um, and, and low progesterone. But I think that that message of estrogen dominance and, and higher levels of estrogen kind of gets lost. Um, and it's, I think, a real critical piece of the puzzle. So um, mm -hmm. I'd love to, you know, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the relationship um, with estrogen dominance and your cycle. And then uh, I know I have some some tips that, you know, I, I give clients for um, helping to kind of bring that estrogen back in balance through diet and lifestyle. And, and maybe yeah. we can share those with listeners. So, so you know, what, dig, why don't you dig in with that topic? Yeah. Okay. There's Oh, I know. There's so much. I love it. So basically... Uh, when we're taking a look at our menstrual cycle and coming back to what is considered a healthy menstrual cycle, however you want to put it, don't really like the word normal, but basically what you're looking at is the yin and yang relationship between estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen, when we're looking at that, it's this growth hormone. So it stimulates breast tissue, it stimulates our uterus, it stimulates our ovaries to grow uh, eggs. And so when we have the other side of that with progesterone, progesterone is sort of the inhibitory uh, hormone. And when when estrogen and progesterone are working together, they're very yin and yang, and they've, they're in the right balance, 
everything works perfectly. So estrogen will do its stimulating job and then progesterone will inhibit the production of estrogen. The problem is that we live in a very estrogenic environment. And <clears throat> I've talked a lot about this on my blog and I know you know about this too. And to me, it makes so much sense that there's such an increase in estrogen dominant cancers and conditions in both men and women because of the endocrine disrupting chemicals in our environment and in our food and in our dairy and our conventional meat and all of these different foods and products. Uh, so coming back to that, uh, estrogen dominance has become a real issue for both women and men, actually. Uh, and what happens is in something like PCOS, we have uh, these not necessarily elevated levels of estrogen because it, lo it looks a couple of different ways. Uh, you can have high levels of estrogen and low levels of progesterone or high levels of estrogen and normal levels of progesterone, and you're still considered estrogen dominant. You can also actually have lower levels of estrogen, but if your progesterone is not balanced with it and it's even lower, then you're still considered estrogen dominant. So a lot of women think that they have to have a lot of estrogen in their bodies, but that's not necessarily the case. They just might have very low progesterone levels and they still don't balance each other out. And so what happens is, you know, estrogen does its job. It stimulates your ovaries to get eggs ready uh, to be released and then progest there's no release. So the egg doesn't actually get released during the middle of your cycle during ovulation for various reasons, as I was saying. So there are a number of things when it comes to PCOS. It could be the high level of androgens, and high levels of androgens actually inhibit that release of your egg. They inhibit ovulation. Also, high levels of LH, or luteinizing hormone, as it's known, that also can have an inhibitory effect on ovulation as well. So there are a couple of different things that happen, and that's why actually the birth control pill is used to treat, uh, to treat PCOS um, from a medical standpoint. Unfortunately, if you're trying to have a baby, that's not what you want to be doing. You don't want to be lowering all of these hormones because you eventually need them uh, when it comes to getting pregnant. But we can get into that later. But the point is, is that when estrogen is doing its job and progesterone, there is not enough progesterone to take over, then we just have this continuous cycle of higher levels of estrogen. And it pushes out ovulation or stops it from happening completely. And then we end up with even lower levels of progesterone. And the reason for that is because when we do ovulate, uh, what happens is progesterone is released from that little corpus lucium, which is in the, in the ovary, uh, where the egg came from. So if the egg never gets released, that little corpus lucium does not ever produce progesterone. And then we end up with even more elevated levels of estrogen in relation to our progesterone levels, unfortunately. And after that, the cycle just kind of continues, and, and we end up just operating at a progesterone deficit over time. So as you can see with the birth control pill, that is not really a solution for this issue because it is essentially just stopping, you know, it's lowering LH levels. It's then preventing ovulation from happening even more. And then we end up with uh, even more of an exacerbated issue. So ultimately, our goal is to really work to uh, address the lack of ovulation or the sporadic ovulation 
through uh, diet and lifestyle and, and just changes, different changes that we can make, uh, targeted supplementation, really managing our stress levels, all of these kinds of things that are really proactive versus uh, where you're taking a, a pill that's going to just work on masking the imbalance that you're actually dealing with. Yeah, and and I think, too, a lot of women with um, have, have been diagnosed with PCOS. They've been on the pill since they were teens, and then they decide that it's time to come off. Maybe they're wanting to start a family, and then all of a sudden PCOS symptoms sort of rear their ugly head um, And because they haven't been um, ovulating and they haven't been kind of working on making these lifestyle changes to get their periods back on track. Um, and that's and, and I think for so many women that can absolutely be done with PCOS. Uh, it, it may take a little while, um, but so many women with PCOS can, um, I believe, have normal periods um, or or get them back to sort of that that 25 to 35 day cycle. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about what women can do. Um, you know, if they are, well, why don't, first of all, why don't we talk a little bit about some other um, symptoms of estrogen dominance. So if you're kind of experiencing um, that that ratio, you know, you're not in that yin, yin-yang um, balance, what would you be experiencing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a number of things. So one of the first things would be you might see that you're either not ovulating or you're ovulating sporadically. What I see more than anything is is irregular periods or irregular cycles where uh, you're having either a short cycle <clears throat> one month and then a longer cycle or you're just having continuous long cycles. So that's the first thing. The second thing is these uh, longer periods, meaning that your period doesn't really last from three to seven days. It lasts from 10 to 20 days, sometimes even longer. I've had a lot of clients have three to four week periods where, uh, again, that's, to me, it just indicates that there's been an overstimulation of the uterine lining and then there's no progesterone to counteract that. Uh, so that's what that's what I see a lot of. And then also, too, just like the continuous periods, but they're just like light. So they're not really, they don't really feel like a period. They're more like uh, continuous light spotting almost or continuous heavy spotting, but very light colored periods. Uh, and then I will also see a lot of breakthrough bleeding where you're spotting at different times in your cycle. You may get a period regularly and you may even get a period that lasts three to seven days long, uh, but then you end up having this spotting before your period or spotting after your period. The spotting before your period, again, is an indication that your uh, progesterone levels are not high enough to keep your uterine lining intact so that it can, you know, basically wait until you're actually supposed to get your period to, for it to all be released. So it starts to be released earlier and earlier in your cycle. And then after your period as well, again, that's just a sign that everything, it's not moving the way it's supposed to be moving or your your uterus is not getting the blood out in the way it's supposed to. And so there's this after, after your period spotting symptom as well. Um, and then also, too, these signs of estrogen dominance as well include things like acne and uh, mood issues. Estrogen is, like I was saying, that growth hormone, and it's a stimulating hormone, so it will uh, create this, uh, these symptoms of P- PMS that a lot of women experience, these symptoms of 
depression, anger, anxiety, moodiness, all of these kinds of feelings that many of us experience and we think it's normal when it really isn't supposed to be that way. We really shouldn't be experiencing PMS and emotional distress in the ways or at the levels that many of us do. If it's disrupting your life on a monthly basis or when you do get your period, then that is definitely a sign that there is an imbalance. Uh, in addition to that too, um, things like breast tenderness, bloating, all of those are also signs of estrogen dominance or progesterone deficiency. Yeah, and and I think um, when when you have like those heavy painful periods as well. Yes. Um, mm. And and even you know women with um, I, I think endometriosis is um, kind of hard. It's it seems hard to diagnose, but there are women. I don't think that endometriosis is is a symptom of PCOS. Um, but it, it's definitely uh, an issue of, uh, it could be an issue of, or attributed to estrogen dominance. And a lot of women with PCOS have endometriosis. Um, yes. Yeah, do you want to speak to that for a minute? or? Yeah, absolutely. I should have said that. I know, the painful, heavy periods and then the endometriosis. Those, I, I know it's so interesting, the correlation. I, it seems that, you know, there's so much emerging research on endometriosis now, it feels like they're finally paying attention to it. But I think that there's definitely a correlation in that, again, there's just been this underlying imbalance that's ha- been happening for so long, and uh, and then it eventually progresses into uh, something like endometriosis, because that's another thing, too, just like PMS and the emotional symptoms, those physical symptoms, like very painful periods where you're, you know, you're either laid up for a day in bed or you're popping a lot of pills to just make it through the day or even, um, you know, just feeling like you can't really function during your period. Those are all signs and symptoms of potentially endometriosis, but also that there is something going on there and that you should definitely be paying attention because physical pain when you get your period, again, that disrupts your life in any way is not considered normal. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think a lot of doctors uh, don't really sit down and they don't have the time to explain this, the whole um, sort of correlation between the, the hormonal imbalances and what's going on with your body. And that's why it's so important to, to listen to podcasts like this and, and do your own research so that you can really empower yourself and understand what's going on with your body. Um, and I think, you know, so we now, we've, we've talked about um, some some typical uh, period problems and as how they associate with PCOS. But let's talk a little bit about what um, women who are listening can do um, in terms of lifestyle changes to kind of bring their hormones back into balance. You talked a little bit about environment and um, xeno, those xenoestrogens that kind of mimic naturally mm-hmm. occurring estrogen in our bodies. Um, so yeah. how can we avoid these um, xenoestrogens in our, in our life? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I think that there's a lot that we can do. It's just a matter of actually, you know, creating a, a protocol around it. 
And so for someone who is in a state of estrogen dominance, and, and this is, can be determined by all of those symptoms we discussed as well as blood work, you can actually see where your estrogen levels are in relation mm-hmm. to your progesterone levels. So that's something that's very helpful for women. So that's the first thing. And you really want to think about creating a, a, a semi-strict, maybe even a strict protocol uh, especially with, you know, endometrial issues, uh, whether it's physical pain or things or very heavy periods or ongoing periods, uh, endometrial tissue growth in that uterine muscle is fed by estrogen and, of course, inhibited by progesterone. So we really want to lower the estrogen exposure. So maybe just a couple of months where you're removing all meats and dairy that are hormonal, so meaning that they're conventionally raised and really focusing on uh, organic products and maybe even removing some dairy completely, especially if there is <clears throat> a potential allergy and focusing on, uh, the cleanest protein you can find. So wild fish, <clears throat> sorry, from the cleanest water as possible, that kind of thing. And, uh, pastured eggs. Again, unless you have um, some kind of allergy to those, then you want to, you want to keep those in your diet because they're really, <clears throat> so sorry, helpful for, uh, balancing your blood sugar, which is very crucial to women who have PCOS just because of the predisposition to insulin resistance. Uh, You want to think about, too, also removing common food sensitivity foods. So the basic ones are gluten and soy, corn, uh, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, those kinds of things can uh, really trigger cortisol production in your body, and that can send your hormones completely off whack. Like, you can actually lower your progesterone when your cortisol goes up high. So that's something to think about, too, when you're thinking about food and what you should do. And then also taking a look at your thyroid. Is your thyroid healthy? If you're struggling with thyroid issues, then you really want to think about uh, removing any kind of raw cruciferous vegetables and bringing in, uh, you know, a lot of mineral and nutrient-dense foods to support your thyroid function. I think that's really crucial. In terms of lifestyle, uh, avoiding xenoestrogens as much as possible, obviously. <coughs> Sorry. Avoiding plastics. Don't drink out of plastic bottles. Don't wear plastic flip-flops or dry-cleaned clothes. Avoid touching receipts. All of those kinds of things are so important. A touching receipts, yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people don't realize that receipts um, contain BPA, which um, is a, a, a major endocrine disorder. And actually studies show that women with PCOS tend to have more BPA in their blood um, as well. I think um, that also can liners, and that's something that I talk to my clients a lot about. You know, a lot of us buy, buy tomato, canned tomatoes and canned beans, you know, just for convenience sake. Um, so it's important to, uh, you know, at, at the very least, to try to find brands like Eden, um, Your Glen. Those are those are uh, BPA-free cans, so that that can go a long way to help uh, reduce your BPA exposure too. But yeah, receipts is I, I think that's something that I don't really think about too often. Um, and oftentimes, I just decline the receipt these days. <laughs> I know, I try to do that as well, but they're always trying to give you the receipt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So I think that those things are, you know, those are a great start. So really, you know, and also too, I think women need to be very focused on uh, supporting their liver detoxification. So phase one and phase two of liver detox 
in that just knowing that your liver is responsible for estrogen metabolization. So if your liver isn't functioning the way it's supposed to, then you have that you have that added hurdle as well, where your liver isn't detoxing estrogen as well as it should be, and then you're potentially exposed to lots of estrogen mimickers outside of your body and you're touching receipts and plastics and all that stuff. So it's great to really support your liver function as well. And and I think one of the best things to do with that is to really focus on getting in, you know, lots of B vitamins through your food, but also potentially taking a, a B complex supplement as well. Yeah, and I, I'm always telling women with PCOS, um, you know, methylated Bs are really important, uh, and, and especially if you're on metformin, I, I don't, you know, I, I, this message really needs to get out because metformin depletes, uh, especially B12. So it's important if you're on metformin, please be supplementing with a, a methylated B12, and and yes. also fi- fiber. Fiber is really yes. um, a great way to flesh out extra estrogen. Um, so. You know, trying sure. to add an, even an, an extra fiber supplement. That's something that I, you know, put in my sh- my um, smoothie every day. Some extra um, fiber powder to kind of help mm. with. Um, and, I, and I've actually found. So I'm I'm 44. So I'm almost 44. So I'm entering that like perimenopause, and and I've noticed that my um, I've been dealing with some estrogen dominance. So for me, um, adding the fiber. Um, has really helped, and also um, the the um, supplement DIM um, mm-hmm. has helped as well. Is that something that you use with your clients? Actually, yeah, I was going to say something. Say something about that. I didn't want to go recommending a bazillion supplements, but I think that DIM is really helpful. And in addition to that, SGS. And SGS is, is similar in that it comes from broccoli sprouts, but it actually supports phase two of liver detoxification, whereas DIM supports phase one. And phase two is the one that really can get bogged down because it has so many different pathways, whereas phase one only has one pathway. And what I found uh, is SGS is incredibly helpful as well in that it really helps to your liver to function better and to get rid of estrogen dominance. In fact, I've used it myself, and I've had a lot of clients use it. And a lot of those uh, menstrual symptoms that I was describing, the, the, especially the emotional and the physical pain, have really diminished because of the use of it. So it's great. Yeah, so, so maybe we could um, send folks to, do you have an article on your site about um, using those supplements? About SGS? Not yeah. yet, but I should. I definitely have some stuff on DIM, and the SGS is kind of a new thing for me, so I'm going to write something about that. So maybe I'll get something up soon, and then we can have somewhere for people to be directed to. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah, that would um, be great. So, so finally, I just wanted to talk about the pill as a therapy for PCOS, and um, would love to get your your opinion on um, using the pill as therapy for PCOS. Do you think it's, it's a good idea? Is it a bad idea? What are your thoughts? Oh, that's such a loaded question, Amy. I know. <laughs> No, it's a really great one. And I think that it's, you know, it depends. Uh, For the most part, I don't believe that it's a great treatment for PCOS because I don't know that it's a treatment. I mean, it's really, if you know what I said in my bio, what I talk about in my bio, it's basically that I don't believe that we uh, should be treating symptoms. We should really be looking deeper and be little investigators, basically, and be looking at the root cause. And 
So unfortunately for many women, they're put on the pill at such a young age where they don't have the information that they need to make an informed decision. And what happens is that pill is just basically turning off the conversation between your brain and your ovaries. And it might seem great at the time, especially if you've got all these symptoms and that's the last thing you want to deal with. But over time, uh, it almost, um, you know, it, it turns off that conversation and the pathway is atrophy, so to speak. And then when we come off of the pill, it's very hard to get those engines going again. And I think that that's, you know, that's the main issue. That's what I'm seeing so much of where women are wanting to address the root problem and they're having a very hard time doing that because they've been on the pill suppressing all of this hormone function for so long. And and so that's ultimately my problem with how the pill functions. But <clears throat> I will say that, you know, sometimes it's helpful just to, you know, take a minute so that you can gather your thoughts and figure out what the next step is. I think it's more of an interim solution. And that's yeah. where it can be useful for some women. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so. I think for for some women, um, you know, they they need to start, cycling um because of the endometrial cancer risks and like you said it it's, can work short term but I, I love how you um kind of phrase that to sort of gather your thoughts to figure out what the next step is because it really is a band-aid it's not getting to the the underlying issue of um what's going on in your body but and I do think that there's a lot of side effects to the pill that that doctors don't really explain to their patients. Uh, it does um, increase insulin resistance. Women with PCOS are at much higher risk of developing blood clots um, being on the pill than the normal population, and it depletes um, nutrients. I think women with PCOS are already nutrient deficient in, in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it. That just adds to it. So, in a way, I think it kind of um, and it exacerbates the the issues that we're dealing with um, as well. So, and I, I know that you know the pill is definitely controversial, um, and uh, there's you know I think that we don't always get the information that we need to make an informed decision. And I know that you're involved in a project um, that's focused on kind of getting information out about the pill. So maybe you could talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I feel like it's just so important, again, for us to understand what exactly is happening with our bodies and with the drugs that we're prescribed and, and just really getting the knowledge and, and having a clear understanding of that. And so I was I recently got involved with uh, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein, who produced the Business of Being Born series of films about four or five years ago. And they optioned a book called Sweetening the Pill that was written by Holly Griggs Paul. And basically the what she talks about in the book is her story taking the pill and how it impacted her and impacted other people she knows. And she gathered a ton of research around what the pill actually does. I mean, almost all the research that was available at the time and uh and compiled this book and they decided to to option it to make a documentary on the birth control pill and and various other forms of hormonal birth control things like the NuvaRing 
And it's very exciting because there really hasn't been an investigative report really of this nature into hormonal birth control. And the fact that, you know, hundreds of millions of women all over the planet use these forms of birth control, many of them have never been given the information, just the basic information about how the, these forms of birth control even work and the potential side effects. And women, you know, women are actually dying. I mean, as you said, right, there are blood clots and women with PCOS have increased risk of blood clots. Uh, but there are many young girls and young women who are dying from blood clots and various other complications that are related back to their hormonal birth control. So we're going to do a bit of investigative journalism and, and figure out what exactly is, you know, what is caused by the these hormonal birth control options and offer women different solutions, so natural birth control options, and, and offer them, you know, an understanding of what is going on in their body so that they can make the best decisions for themselves. It's going to be very exciting. Well, I'm going to definitely post a, a link to that project. Um, so I understand that they're trying to get some funding for the, the project. Yes. So we are doing a Kickstarter June 1st to the 29th uh, to raise initial funds to start making the movie. And because as you can imagine, this is a very controversial topic and pretty much every funding source that they have approached over the last year and a half has completely dissipated or disappeared and nobody, everyone's excited about it at first, but then they realize the exact nature of the film and then pretty much everyone backs away because as you know, Big Pharma, all of these companies, they, they have a lot of pull and it has been, it's been a challenge for them to, to get funding. So we figured it would have to be more of a grassroots effort for, from women who have been impacted or no women who've been impacted by hormonal birth control. And, you know, 60, over 60% of women, they start the pill and within a year they come off because of the side effects. So that, to me, is a massive number that should not be ignored, and I, we felt really strongly that there are enough women out there who have been impacted who would like this story to be told and for their message to get out there through a film like this. And so that's what we're doing. Yeah, well, thank you for, for getting involved with that. I think you're, you're right. It's a really important message to, to get out. Um, and. I also want to thank you for, for joining us today. Um, so much uh, great information. Uh, and I wanted to just give you a, a chance to just tell listeners, you know, if somebody wants to reach out to you, how, how can they work with you? Thanks. So, yeah, thank you, Amy. This has been so great. Uh, you can reach me at my website. It's NicoleJardim.com. And uh, my email is support at NicoleJardim.com if you have questions. Uh, and then also, too, if you take a look at Get Started on my site, you will see a whole bunch of information, my favorite blog posts, as well as the programs that I offer and all of my free resources. So everything's there for you. Perfect. So I just want you to leave us with a message of hope for women with PCOS. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just I feel that, you know, there is so much hope. And I know so many women who have been diagnosed with PCOS at such a young age where they're very vulnerable and they don't have 
the information that they really need to, to make the best decisions for themselves and just know that this is not any kind of life sentence. There is so much that's within your control and that you can do so much to help yourself to feel so much better and get your symptoms under under control. So I just know that I've helped so many women do this and I, I truly believe that it's possible for everyone who has a PCOS diagnosis to to have everything they want with their health, with their fertility and their menstrual cycle. Perfect. What a great message. And thank you so much again for joining us, Nicole. And and thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. 